Now, all Father, we come before you this day. And we come before your holy word. I ask, Lord God, that you are the great illuminator of Scripture. And we would ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would shine brightly on the meaning of this text. And that through it, Lord God, you would, by your Spirit, glorify your Son. Father, I pray that I would be faithful to the text and that I would speak truthfully that which you have inspired. But I pray, Father God, that your Son would shine brightest, not my words, not my animation, not my phrasing, or even some thought, Lord God, but that you, Jesus Christ, would be glorified in all of this. There are many passages of text that are difficult, Lord God, but we come to you as the, the revealer of mysteries, And we ask, Lord God, that you would be the Lord of our hearts and change our hearts this day, Lord God. I pray that we not take your word for granted. I ask, Lord God, that we not just treat this lightly. But as it is, the very words of the God who created all things. So have mercy upon us, Lord God, and grant us favor. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. In the book of Luke, we see the words of Jesus recorded where he says, For the Son of Man has come to to seek and to save the lost. He said that to a man by the name of Zacchaeus after Zacchaeus had um, invited Jesus into his house for dinner. But let us not presume for a moment that this was some new word or some new happening that Jesus just kind of came upon the scene all of a sudden and began a new work of God in seeking and saving the lost. For God has been a missionary God from day one. From the day that he uttered the words, where are you, Adam? To the day that the last knee bows and the final confession is made before the arrival of our glorious Lord and Savior. God is a missionary God. God is seeking the lost. And so we see that demonstrated for us explicitly in the book of Daniel chapter 4 where we see God seeking after King Nebuchadnezzar. It's interesting how God is seeking after a king. Sometimes we tend to mistake or pigeonhole God in that God cares about the downtrodden, God cares about the the poor, and God cares about the weak, which is absolutely true. But God cares about kings. And God cares about people in authority and God cares about the elite and the non-elite and the Jew and the Gentile and the male and the female and the slave and the free. And that God calls us to make petition for all people, those in authority and those who are servants. And here we see God seeking after the heart of the mightiest man on the earth at this time. 
Now, a while back, I had mentioned to you that one of the things I think that's going on in Daniel is that God is invading Babylon. And that might seem a little odd because the book of Daniel begins with Babylon invading Jerusalem. And specifically going into Jerusalem in 605 B.C. Um, and taking the people of Jerusalem captive. And not only does he take the, does Babylon take the people of Jerusalem captive, but Nebuchadnezzar goes into the very household, the very temple of God, and takes some of the instruments of worship and brings them back to the temple of his God. So it appears as though Babylon is certainly uh, is invading and conquering uh, the people of God, and certainly that is one aspect. But I think when we look closely, there's another invasion going on. And that is, God is invading Babylon. Now, why does God invade Babylon? Well, certainly God does not need more territory. God does not need greater wealth. God does not need more people to serve Him. God doesn't need any of those things. So why does God invade Babylon? God is invading Babylon to reveal his truth to a prideful king so that that king would repent. God is seeking Nebuchadnezzar. The only thing holding Nebuchadnezzar back is his own pride. And so today what we are going to see is God once again invades Babylon, makes a direct affront on the king, destroys his pride, and demonstrates that Nebuchadnezzar is not king, but God is the Lord of all. So, that's where we're going, or that's where we've been. Here's where I hope to go today, is that we will learn that God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the world. That is especially important in the days in which we live, as we see turmoil and we wonder who is in control, and we need to realize that God is the ruler over all of the kings of the world. And when kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, you and I are caught by off guard, caught by surprise, but God is the instigator, if you will, of the rise and fall of all kingdoms. And because God is sovereign over all, our response to that is that we are to humble ourselves, bow the knee, and entrust ourselves to the reigning king. Another thing we ought to, we will point out today, is that God is dealing with the heart of Nebuchadnezzar for the purpose of bringing him to repentance. Of course, the question is going to come up, did Nebuchadnezzar become a believer in Yahweh? Well, I'll touch on that at the end, but I'll also let you kind of work through that and see what you think about that. So that's, uh, that's kind of where we've been. That's where we're going. If you will, would you join me in Daniel chapter 4 as I read um, that text that is before us. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. 
I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners all came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now, these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was able, it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind and as I lay on my bed and upheld an angelic watcher, a holy one descended from the heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip, of it, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Leave the stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it. In the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth and let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of the, my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled. For while, as his thoughts alarmed him, the king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar replied, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodge. It is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one descending from heaven, saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord my king. 
that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over to you until you recognize the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. And in that, it was commanded to leave a stump with its root of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field and you will be given grass to eat like cattle for seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me. For the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we begin with Nebuchadnezzar starting off with... um, praise to God Most High. And now it's, when I first read this, I thought, well, doesn't, it seems like this passage of Scripture, this, these first few verses, these praises, seem to belong to the previous section. But then as I began thinking about it and, and looking at it a little bit more closely, it, I think it fits with, our, with the, whole, the whole testimony that's going on in chapter 4. In fact, let me put this to you. Perhaps we should outline chapter 1 as King Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony. Perhaps if you've been asked to give your testimony of how you came to know the Lord, you might start out something like this. First of all, I just want to praise God. God is majestic and wonderful and has done far beyond what I could ever dream or imagine. Now, I ignored the Lord for many years and I went my own way and you'd give your testimony and then perhaps at the end you would say, and glory be to God who saved me by his grace. Do you see that? You might begin with praise and then you would give your testimony and you would end with praise. That's 
what we have here. We have a guy starting off with glory be to God. And then this is who I was. And then at the end, he says, now praise be to God most high. And so he begins with doxology. He begins with praise. He begins with these words. It seemed good to me. Let me just suggest to you that if God has acted mightily in your life, declare it. This is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. God has done something amazing. God has done something tremendous. God has displayed himself in ways unimaginable. And now it seems good to me to make sure you all are aware of all the great things that God has done. What great things has God done in your life? I'm going to give you homework right now. Here's your homework. I want you to go home, perhaps even while you're sitting here today. I want you to contemplate and think about great things that God has done. That shouldn't take too long. In fact, that should come rushing into your mind right now. We should always be constantly remembering the great things that God has done. It can be something he did way in the past, years and years ago. Perhaps it was something he has done this morning. Doesn't matter. Think, make a list of the great things that God has done. Then here's the next step of your homework. Declare it. Find somebody this week whom you are talking to and declare the good things that God has done. Encourage them with the great things that God has done. Perhaps they're an unbeliever and they don't know that God does great things. They just see him as a judgmental, cruel, evil being. Praise him for the great things he has done. Maybe it is your brother or sister in the Lord who needs to hear how God continues to do great things. That's your homework. It seemed good to me to declare these things. So the purpose of this account is to reveal God's greatness and power. And Nebuchadnezzar goes on and he says, how great are his signs and his wonders. It's interesting because Yahweh has employed miracles to speak to Nebuchadnezzar. Some of the miracles that he has seen, of course, is when he threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, and he saw four individuals walking around, and he saw those three men come out, not even smelling like smoke. Not only alive, but they didn't even smell like smoke. He has witnessed how Daniel is able not only to interpret dreams, but even if you don't tell Daniel the dream, he has the ability to seek out the God of heaven who will reveal the unknown to him. And so he not only knows what the dream is, but he knows the interpretation of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar has been spoken to by God through the miraculous, through miraculous signs and wonders. We should not be surprised at the end of the book of John. Remember what John at the end of the book of the Gospel of John. What does John say? John says this about Jesus. Jesus did a whole lot of other things. And in fact, if we were to try to write them all down, I suppose they would fill the libraries of the earth. And then he says this. But these things. These things have been written so that you will believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that in believing you may have life in His name. And John goes through and he relates seven signs that Jesus did. Not miracles, signs. Like raising Lazarus from the dead. 
seven signs to talk about who he is. So God speaks, and I suppose John would say, I suppose Jesus did a whole lot more than this. I can't recount them. I'm just going to tell you these things so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. God is speaking through Nebuchadnezzar, to Nebuchadnezzar through dreams and through visions and through the miraculous to bring him to a place that, where he recognized, where Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that God is God. So here's a quick summary of these first three verses. God has revealed himself clearly to Nebuchadnezzar through signs and through the constant witness of Daniel. So we're going to see um, the constant witness of Daniel in just a second. So how has God revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar? He's done miraculous things in his life. And he has also had Daniel as his constant advisor declaring the testimony of the God whom he serves. You see, this is an invasion. God has invaded Babylon and he is seeking to conquer the king. Not for more property, not for more servants, not for more gold or silver, but for the heart and the, for the heart of the king, for the soul of the king, so that the king would realize that God is God. Well, in our account here, in Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, he talks about a dream that he had. And it says that he was flourishing in my palace. I was at ease and flourishing in my palace. There's just great ease and luxury. He was probably one of the wealthiest individuals you could imagine. And there he is, just lifestyles of the rich and famous, I guess. But notice what happens. I was at ease and in my house and flourishing in my palace. And then I had a dream and I was alarmed and fearful. So in the midst of his ease and luxury, God invades and the result is fear and alarm. I I think it's interesting that all of a sudden Nebuchadnezzar becomes fearful and alarmed because really who could threaten Nebuchadnezzar? I didn't get into the dating of this chapter, but it has to come near the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Um, And I won't go into great detail. But by this time, Nebuchadnezzar has pretty much solidified his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar has built the hanging gardens of Babylon. His palace in the city of Babylon is probably the most luxurious it's ever been. He has walls within walls. And so Babylon was surrounded by a great wall. One of the gateways was like 40 feet high. So who gets over that? All right. That's a pretty high wall. Well, that's just the outer wall. Then he has a wall around his citadel. He has walls within walls. Who's going to conquer that city? I mean, if anybody can be at ease... Nebuchadnezzar can be at ease. I got great luxury. I've got the best army. I've got the best defenses. Nobody can attack me. Nobody can cause fear or alarm because I got it all straightened out. Well, he didn't count. He did not count on a supernatural divine being who can breach those walls and come through them without any hindrance whatsoever. And God Almighty does not is not hindered or kept back by 40 foot walls or by armed gates. God comes where no man is able to go and he interrupts this ease and luxury. 
And the result is fear and alarm. Because the message to Nebuchadnezzar is that, Nebuchadnezzar, you are not the true sovereign. You are not the true king. Your kingship is derived. Your authority is derived. I, the God of heaven and the king of kings, and I, the God of heaven and the Lord of lords, and you are to serve me. Well, often when people are confronted with a holy God, the first thing they do is they run and they get advice from others. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar does. He goes and he gets his wise guys and he brings them in and says, hey, what's going on? Here's my dream. Tell me what's going on. But here's our problem. The problem is, is that they are unable and inadequate to give proper advice. And the reason they are inadequate and incapable of giving proper advice is because Nebuchadnezzar's because they would provide a natural solution to a supernatural problem. The problem is not that Nebuchadnezzar needs more land or more property. He does not need to go on. He does not need to acquire more servants. He does not need to acquire more wives or or cattle or horses or chariots or build new walls. His problem is supernatural. I think it was Augustine who says that our hearts are troubled and are are un are not at rest until we find our rest in thee. And Nebuchadnezzar is trying to find rest in a human solution, and human solutions will not bring about a solution to a supernatural problem. Daniel comes in. People have asked why Daniel is last on the scene when he is the chief amongst Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet we're not told but I would hold to the fact that now that everybody else has tried and failed Daniel comes in and shows that God the God of heaven is the true solution to your problems and Nebuchadnezzar recounts the dream and he says basically I see this great tree and it grows large and everything all the animals and all of them Uh, beasts of the earth take nourishment under it. But then this, this large tree grows and it fills the earth and then a watcher, a heavenly being, comes and uh, commands that the tree be chopped down, only its roots remain, put a band of iron around it. But I like the reason why this judgment has come. In verse 17, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. And so why is this dream given? Why is the tree chopped down? Why is all of this happening? It is so that the living will know that God is God. That's the purpose. And so when judgment comes, the judgment is coming with a purpose. We need to realize when God judges, God just doesn't do so because he is contemptuous or because he's petulant 
and he is just kind of flies off the handle. God does what God does and everything God does has a reason and a purpose and God is going to judge Nebuchadnezzar. But not for no reason, not just because he says, well, I don't like what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. No, I got a reason. And my reason is so that Nebuchadnezzar would know that he is not the king, I am king, and that he would lay down his pride and bow the knee and confess that I am Lord. God is seeking Nebuchadnezzar. God is seeking the salvation of this pagan king. Do we pray for our kings? Do we pray that God would invade North Korea or China or Russia? Do we pray that God would invade our White House? Oh, we need an invasion. We need our highest political rulers, whether in this nation or another nation, to bow the knee and realize that God is God. They are not. Their power is derived. And God sets up kings and he brings them down. And he does to men whatever he wishes. This is what he's trying to get across to Nebuchadnezzar. A pagan king has no thought of God. And God is saying, I want you. I'm going to pursue you. I will judge you if need be. And I'm going to bring you to a place where you recognize that I am Lord. What an amazing thing that would be if God began invading the political fortresses of this world. This is exactly what's going on. It is designed, this judgment will be designed to evoke confession that God is sovereign. And all of this is framed in the context of an open letter. This is an open letter of Nebuchadnezzar to his kingdom. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar writes this letter and he says, God wanted me to acknowledge his rule. I, King Nebuchadnezzar, was confronted by God so that God, so that I would recognize that he is Lord. And the first thing that needs to go the primary barrier that is keeping Nebuchadnezzar from bowing the knee before the mighty God is that Nebuchadnezzar needs to realize that he needs to step down off the throne. His pride will need to be destroyed. It will need to be crushed. He will need to realize that he is not God. And that's exactly what Yahweh is going to do. So, Nebuchadnezzar gives the dream to Daniel and says, Daniel, tell me what it means. And Daniel, I love Daniel's response. Daniel is appalled and alarmed. There's probably a couple of good reasons why Daniel is appalled and alarmed. Probably the first good reason that Daniel is appalled and alarmed is, can you imagine telling the king the bad news? This is the guy who wanted to kill you not all that long ago. You know that he kills people indiscriminately. And Daniel knows that this dream is bad news. You don't want to bring bad news to the king. So he's probably appalled and alarmed at that. There's probably a good reason why the other magicians and sorcerers and 
cabinet members could not interpret the dream. Perhaps one of the reasons they couldn't is they didn't want to. Yeah, it's just better to say, I don't know. I don't know what that thing means. Get Daniel. Daniel will tell you. But here's the cool thing about Daniel. Daniel, two things that are cool about Daniel. He is appalled and alarmed, but first of all, he tells the king the truth. Even at risk of his life, I am going to tell you the truth. You can kill me if you like. You already tried that. You already tried that with Shadrach, Meshach, and you know that that doesn't work too well. But you can try it if you want. And nevertheless, I will still tell you the truth. Folks, we need to be diligent about telling the truth to people. Even if we think, well, what will they think of me? Will they mock me? Will they defriend me? Will they unlike me? Will they whatever? But will I tell them the truth? That's the first thing Dan is going to do. He's going to tell the king the truth. I think the other thing that's going on, the second thing that's going on here, is Daniel is appalled and Daniel is alarmed because of the judgment that's coming. I think that Daniel has a great love for Nebuchadnezzar. He has a great love for the soul of the king. Here's an incredible conflict. We have a slave, Daniel, coming before the king. And I know Daniel is like top dog in there, but he's still a slave. He's still a Hebrew slave, no matter how you slice it. Nebuchadnezzar is king, Daniel a slave. And Daniel loves the king. He loves the king enough to tell him the truth. He loves him enough to tell him, Neb, judgment's coming. And unless you repent, judgment is going to come. Oh, I pray that we would have a heart for the lost. A heart to tell people the truth. This is risky for Daniel. And so, in summary, what we see here is that love for the lost is an imperative. I'm sure Daniel has some trepidation as to what might happen to him. But perhaps Daniel has an even greater fear. What will happen to King Nebuchadnezzar if he doesn't hear the words that I'm about to tell him? What happens if he does not heed the words that judgment is coming? I pray that we would have a heart like Daniel. In fact, let's just stop and let's pray that God would give us a heart for the lost. Our Father, we recognize that you are the great missionary God. You've always loved the lost. You are the one who leaves the 99 and goes in search for the one. You are the one who sought out Adam when he rebelled against you. You are the one who has sent, sent the Apostle Paul into Caesar to bring the gospel message. You are the one who goes into the highways and into the byways to seek out the ragged and the mistreated and the abused and the downtrodden and the neglected 
and the forsaken and the nobodies. Father, I pray that if our hearts have grown cold to the plight of the lost, Lord God, that even now you would spark anew, light anew, Father God, in our hearts a desire to see the lost saved. That we would have a great love for them. That we would not fear what might happen to us because of the fear of what might happen to somebody who does not hear the gospel message. What can happen to us? Ridicule? What will happen to those who reject you? Eternal damnation. Oh, Father, give us a heart. Break the coldness of our hearts. Break the busyness of our lives, Lord God. And begin with me, Lord God. I'm so focused in so many other areas, Lord God. At the end of the day, I realize, oh, I had opportunity and I did not even take it. Have mercy upon me, a sinner, Lord God, for withholding the gospel message from those who need to hear it or for being fearful. Give me a heart like Daniel, unafraid, but more concerned about the judgment that is about to befall another individual. So have mercy upon us, Lord God. Give us a heart for those who don't know you and help us to fulfill your great commission to make disciples of all nations. We give you praise and thanks. Amen. So Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Therefore, verse 27, Therefore, O king, my advice to you, here's my advice, break away from your sins. Break away now. Repent! That's what he's saying. Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Your kingdom is not at hand. The kingdom of God is about to invade your life. Repent! Break away from your sins. Renounce and begin to do what's right. Break away now from your sins. And what do you need to do? Start doing righteousness. First of all, repent. Second of all, start living the life of repentance. Renounce and do what is right. Start showing mercy to the downtrodden. Start showing mercy to the poor. Start being kind to those whom you have been cruel to. Folks, the life of salvation, the life of a believer is one that not only repents, not only um, makes confession that God is most high, but begins to live a life that is in alignment with those words. Please do not think for a moment that I am saying that you are saved by works. You just go back and listen to my Galatians messages. You will know I don't believe that for a second. But I do believe that the saved work. Ephesians chapter 2, 8, we love that, don't we? 2.10 says, for this you were saved for the purpose of good works. Saved by grace. Why? To do good works. Nebuchadnezzar, break away from your sins and begin living the life that God has called you to live. Renounce what you do and begin doing what is right. Be merciful to those who need mercy. I find this so interesting because... Nebuchadnezzar has not been merciful. 
And yet the God of heaven is being merciful to him. So there's the dream, Nebuchadnezzar. There's your dream. There's the interpretation. Here's what you need to do. Does Nebuchadnezzar take the advice? No, he doesn't. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. In fact, he was given 12 months grace. 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm walking on the roof of my palace. 12 months! I'm walking on the roof of my palace. And I say, oh, what a great king am I. Look at all the great things. And let me tell you, Babylon was an amazing place. It was an impressive place. Look at the glory that I've created. Look at the power that I have. Look at all that I've done. Oh my goodness, I am an amazing guy. Look at me, look at me. And it's true. Everything he did was really, really amazing. And in that moment, grace ran out. Twelve months. Twelve months. And there came a point in time where grace ran out and judgment happened. When the words were still on his lip, judgment fell. And he began to act like a beast of the field. He became subhuman. He thought, look at me. I am the epitome of, hum- of humanity. And at this point now, he becomes subhuman and begins to live like a beast. Begins to live like a cow. This is actually... Uh, I read accounts where this has actually happened to people. It's in my notes here. It's called lycanthropy. It's where a person actually believes that they are an animal and begins to live like an animal. It's a psychiatric condition. This particular um, type of lycanthropy is known as boanthropy. It's different from avianthropy. What do you think avianthropy is? Thinks you're a bird. Boanthropy thinks you're cattle. There are actually documented cases of this. And they're amazing. People live out in the cold and in the rain and it doesn't seem to affect them like it doesn't really affect a cow or a bird. And, and his hair grew and it got matted. And I can imagine the council is like, well, I gotta need to speak to, uh, to the king. Well, he's kind of out there chewing his cud. <laughs> Go out there and maybe bring him some hay and he'll receive you into his court. But these are real cases. This isn't just something made up. There's actually... Documented cases of these things happening. This, ha- this was his judgment. Look how great I am. <laughs> you think you're great? I'll make you a cow. And that happened for seven periods of time. I think we would, most interpreters would say that was for seven years. For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar lived like a cow. And you'll notice this, but at the end of that period, it comes back to the first person. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Folks, He ends this time with praise, and I need to keep reminding you, good theology always leads to praise. 
And Nebuchadnezzar earned his theological degree in seven years. And he learned that God is sovereign and that he is able to humble even the greatest kings of the earth. And when you got good theology, you will praise God. Nebuchadnezzar got good theology. His good theology is that God is God and I am not. God has crushed Nebuchadnezzar's pride. I love this phrase. I raised my eyes to heaven. This is, this is a picture of humility that I have to lift my head. I'm the king. Everybody lifts their head to me. But I, the king, have been humbled and I lift my eyes to the God of heaven. I am low and he is high and I am nothing and he is exalted. I've lifted my eyes to the God of of heaven, and I acknowledge that He is the one who does as He pleases. I thought I was sovereign. I'm not sovereign. God can strike me down and make me act like a cow for seven years. I don't have that kind of power. It is the God of heaven. He raised me up. He took me down. He can raise me up again. And when this whole thing is done, He's going to raise up another one after me. I am nothing, and God is all. God breaks the pride of a sinner. God breaks the pride of the self-exalted. And then he brings them to a place of confessing that the Lord is truthful and righteous in all his ways. In other words, God is justified in his judgment. This is an amazing thing. This is an amazing place that Nebuchadnezzar has come to. I'll conclude with this. Our first question is, did Nebuchadnezzar come to true faith in God? Well, there is the jury's out on that and various Bible students have come to various conclusions. Some say yes, some say no. Um, some historians say uh, definitely not. I don't know. I'm in, and you and I are in the great position. It is not ours to know. But how cool would it be one of these days when you breathe your last breath and you cross over and you see Jesus for the first time, how glorious that will be. And then as you're wandering around, imagine if Nebuchadnezzar is there. Imagine. And he's like, what a great place this is. Nebuchadnezzar. Could you imagine if Nebuchadnezzar was saved? If he is, it is solely because of the sovereign mercy of God alone. I don't know. I pray that he is. But here's what we do learn from this. Not who's saved and who's not saved. What we do learn is that God is a missionary God and that God is seeking after Nebuchadnezzar and he does this by invading this kingdom. He invades his mind through dreams and he upsets him and then what he does is he brings in his witness, Daniel. So the first thing he does is he shows forth his his ability to penetrate even the hardened heart of Nebuchadnezzar. He destroys Nebuchadnezzar's pride, and then he brings Daniel in to fearlessly deliver the message of repentance. But any heart that's changed, it was changed by God. This is how God works. I don't know who God's working on. I don't. But has God called me to deliver a message? Yeah, to bear witness to the God of gods. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and say, you know what, God's been working on me. 
You had no idea, God. That's what I've been seeing. I've been troubled in soul and spirit and mind. And that message speaks to me. I'm so glad that you came and told me that message because I've been troubled in spirit. I've been troubled in mind. I've been troubled in my soul. And there seems to be no answer. And you've given it to me. Do you think God was silent to that? Do you think God was troubling that person for a reason? And then bringing you along and bringing the message of repentance and salvation. Folks, this is what God is doing. And he's doing it through you and through me. He did it through Daniel. God is doing his job. He's working his miraculous power. He is softening hearts. He is speaking to people. And now he's going to bring you along to preach the gospel message. That's what we do. And when people repent and believe the gospel, know this. It is only because of the miraculous work of God. It may take seven years to bring them along. Your job is to proclaim the message. Proclaim it fearlessly. And so I think that chapter 4 shows us a process of repentance, that God deals with heart issues which hinder repentance. He pursues the soul until it deals with the sin that blocks the mission. And God uses both natural and supernatural means to accomplish his purpose. I don't know how he's going to use supernatural means. I don't. But I do know how he's going to use natural means. That is, he's going to fill your mouth with the gospel message and we are to proclaim it. So here's my second bit of homework. This week, share the gospel with an unbeliever. One unbeliever, just one. Share the gospel one time with one person who doesn't know the Lord. And if you don't know anybody who doesn't know the Lord, then we need to get out of our shell and go to the places where there are unbelievers. You know at least one unbeliever. If you don't, you know where at least one unbeliever is. Perhaps it's the person who does your hair. Perhaps it's the waiter or waitress at the, at the restaurant. Perhaps it's the person who comes to fix your house. Perhaps it's that individual. Share the gospel with one person this week. And let's hear of the great things that God has done. Because God is working. God's already seeking the lost. He came to seek and to save that was lost. And the means he uses is the gospel message to you and me. Let's stand and let's pray. Our Lord, we come and we submit ourselves to you this morning. I pray that you would break our pride and break our arrogance, break our our self-sufficiency. Help us to rely upon you. Lord God, give us boldness and fearlessness to share your truth this week. Lord God, let us be faithful in that. Lord, as we've said before, Let us share the gospel, even if we do it badly. You're not hindered by a bad gospel presentation. Just let us share it and do so with humility. Let us recognize that you are God and that we are not. And let us bow our knee before you, for you are the holy and great exalted God. So have mercy upon us and let us rejoice in your goodness. In Christ's name, amen.